All right, guys, open up your Bibles if you have them to Mark, or sorry, to John chapter 11. Now, we pass out Bibles here every Sunday, and so listen, don't feel weird about this. Just slip your hand out. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to follow along with us. If you don't know where John is in the Bible, they can help you find this, look at someone who's already flipping there, and they can do that. So just slip your hand up, grab a Bible. If you don't own one at all, you do now. It's our free gift to you. Enjoy that and read it. Now, John chapter 11 is not like your normal prayer texts. Okay, so when we're trying to talk prayer uh, in the church today, we don't often go to John 11. It's just not a text where, where the prayer piece really jumps out to you. But we're going to do something a bit different because I think there's something, as we answer the question today of how did Jesus pray? And, and actually, let me backtrack. What we're doing right now is we're in the midst of a five-week series called The Praying God, uh, really studying and pushing into, okay, we think Jesus is God, right? We think like Jesus is God in the flesh, right? And yet, in the same time, we see this God man praying to his father. Like, and it's just kind of confounding. Why did Jesus need to pray? Like, what, what was his motivation? And so um, we did an intro last or two weeks ago, kind of couching prayer way back in Genesis chapter 2, showing the original communion and intent and communication that God had with man that was broken in Genesis chapter 3 because of what we call the fall, where man disobeyed God's command in the Garden of Eden. And so the world fell into this turmoil where communion and communication with God was fractured, but now have been restored through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we go to last week, where John Demeter, who talked a whole lot about Rocky, so if you're here last week, did anyone go and watch one of the Rocky films from last week? Just I watched two of them, just because uh, he talked about it so much. And so if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and he answered the question, why did Jesus pray? Landing on two major uh, answers. One was dependence, which is phenomenal just to think through, that Jesus, the God-man, was uh, fully dependent upon his Father. And, and I begin to think through just our own lens of this. Like, like it's, it's borderline foolishness for us to think we need not be fully dependent upon God when Jesus was, right? And, and so he began to navigate that. He began to get, navigate through identity. And what does it mean? We're going to talk a little bit more about the identity stuff today as well. So all to say today we answer the question, how did Jesus pray? How, like how did he pray? And, and we're not going to look at this so much from like a mechanistic viewpoint. But, but, but more from like a characteristic standpoint. What was the character that was driving how Jesus prayed? And, and here's the thing. Over the last uh, two months we've been planning this series, we've been trying to just dive deep into the prayers of Christ throughout the New Testament. I mean, just like really, Jesus, okay, you talk to God here, and you talk to the Father here, and you prayed like this, and just immerse ourselves in Jesus' prayer life. And as we've been doing it, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you the answer to the question, how did Jesus pray? And I'm not saying that this is the answer, and there's no other avenues, there's no other pieces to it. It just feels like to me, after all our time in it, this would be the best summation of the answer. How does Jesus pray? I think the answer is with humble with humble hope. How did Jesus pray? With humble hope. And so I want to talk about these two words for just a moment before we jump into the text. So when we start talking about humble, we, we kind of have some decent ideas of what that means. We know it's the opposite of pride, et cetera, et cetera. But I want you to know in the Greek, this word tapenos is humble. Humble is tapenos in the Greek. and has a very robust definition, and it literally means of low stature or place, Okay of low stature or place. Now, let's just think for a second about who Jesus is or what the Bible claims about Christ. It claims that he's God, 
right? Colossians 1 says that Jesus, in him all things were made, through him, for him, and by him, right? Like th- that, that is, this is who we're talking about. So Jesus deserves his, his right, if you will, is high status. It's the highest stature of statures. It's all glory, honor, and praise. It's high place that he should be up in heaven, ruling from heaven. But what he does intentionally 2,000 years ago is he intentionally makes himself low. He checks his status to the side to come down into this mess, right? He, he, he checks his status, and we're getting ready to celebrate Advent, the, the birth of Christ, right? So he's born a baby into a manger as opposed to a king on a throne in heaven. He sets himself low, low stature, low place. So he's humble in this pursuit. The question for us in the midst of this is, is what is our end goal? That as we kind of move through this life in a, in a story of the Western world, which tends to, I think, pull us towards consumerism and consumption, is not the oftentimes the end goal, the upward trajectory of our life, is it not high stature and high place? Are we, are we not trying to get to a place where, look at me, look how many followers I have. Look how much money I make. Look at, I used to live here, but now I can live here. Right? I used to only have this, but now I drive this. Look at all the, and it's building. It's higher and higher and higher and higher. And hear me, I want to say this. This is not an attack on working hard or getting a promotion. Like if you get offered a promotion and the job ain't sinful, you should probably take it, okay? okay? If you get offered a higher salary, fantastic. Take the higher salary. Be generous with that higher salary. This is not a, hey, don't work hard and achieve great things. Work hard and achieve great things. But if the chief end and the goal of that upward trajectory is you, then we're off kilter. Okay, then we're starting, we're starting to kind of create this chasm between the character and person of Jesus and the character and person of those who are drawn into him. And this, this, is, this is an issue, okay? So we, we have to test ourselves against that. Jesus was, was humble. Um, we often talk about this here at Redemption Church. One of the things, uh, Pastor Tim Maughan, who's one of our pastors at Redemption Gilbert, he's one of the lead guys over there. When we were starting Redemption back in 2011, if you don't know our story, I'm not gonna get too deep into it, but essentially there were three different churches. They merged to become one church thinking we could reach the state of Arizona better together than separate, okay? Now, back in 2011, Tim had this prayer for us it was really simple. And now he prays it almost every time we gather. And it's, Lord, please keep us small. Okay? Lord, please keep us small. Now, when he prayed that back then and when we pray it now, this, that didn't mean then. It doesn't mean now that we don't care about church planning. Like, we want to plant more churches. We, we think more churches, healthy churches that are investing in their communities and blessing people with the gospel and with good news and care, that's a good thing. We didn't mean, Lord, give us, keep us small numbers. We don't want any money to invest back into the kingdom and mission and discipleship. We didn't mean that. We didn't say we wanted less people to show up. What we're saying is in the midst of whatever God wanted to do, Lord, would you keep us humble? Would you keep us small? Would you let us know this isn't about us, that this is about your glory, your kingdom, your work, your righteousness, etc., cetera, et cetera. Lord, keep us small. And do I, I, I so long for that posture individually, and I long it for our church, both as you guys as individuals and as a corporate family here. Lord, keep us small. May we know that whatever blessing that we experience is because of his grace, not our doing, and so we just can be faithful stewards. 
That's the vision, right? So that's what we see in Christ. I think this, this humility, I'm going to get to why this is important in just a moment. The second thing, okay, is hope. Now again, let's go to the Greek on this one. The word is elpis, elpis. And I don't speak Greek, but I think that's a pretty good pronunciation. But elpis literally is translated to expectation. Now when we start thinking about hope within our context, like I say, hey man, uh, you coming to my house tomorrow for the barbecue? You're like, I hope so. Like there's this like, uh, I'm going to try and make it work type of thing. There's a hesitancy to our hope in our world today. And, and honestly, for many good reasons, the world's broken. So I think some of that just kind of fits into our understanding of life. But man, when we start talking about when the Bible, when the Roman Empire, when the Greeks, when, they're, when these guys were writing the scriptures, when they start talking hope, they're like, no, this is an expectation So when we start bringing these things together, what we see is Jesus living by this humble hope, this, man, I am low, but I have a high expectation of what he'll do, okay? Like, like I will make myself low because he is the one who does great things. He, He is the one that transforms. He is the one that renews culture. He is the one that saves, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is the way we kind of move through it. And so the question is, okay, does that define us? Now, here's why this is so important. Many of us think, though, and, I, and, I th- and I've heard it, and we, we've been studying prayer sermons, and I think oftentimes when you get into a sermon on prayer or a series on prayer, what we're looking for is some tangible, external, how do I do this betters, right? Like, how am I supposed to pray? Let's look at how Jesus prayed. So I'll just emulate him, do the same thing. And I want to tell you that Jesus' prayer life and our prayer lives must begin way before a single word leaves your mouth. Okay, that, that your and my prayer life, that Jesus' prayer life started far before he said a single word to his father. That there was an internal reality to him. And this is where the humility and the hope come into play. Jesus was a humble man, a hopeful man. This then shaped his prayer life. What we know about the words that we speak, right? That out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Hear me, out of the overflow of your heart, you pray. So, so listen, we, we, we can't begin to start saying, hey, pray like this, or do this type of thing in prayer if all of this is just a wreck. I'm not saying don't pray if you're messed up because that's all of us, but I'm saying, man, if we want to grow in this, it's got to start internal, amen? It's got to start with, okay, conform me to your heart, Jesus. I want to pray like you, then give me your heart, and then what will flow out of that will be honest and good prayers. So that being said, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Let's start there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. If you're unfamiliar with that story, it's just early on in the book of John. I encourage you to read it. Um, So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, just recap, right? So in other words, one of Jesus' best friends is is dying. He's on his deathbed. And, And the news would have spread, not just to Mary and Martha, but to all who were gathered in Bethany. Okay, these guys are close with Jesus this guy's going to be fine, right? Like, like Jesus heals, he restores, this is what he does. So just call out to your friend, he'll be here, Lazarus will be 
fine. Like that, that's, that's kind of the vision. Now, I want to read, read verses 5 and 6 because I think it's the key to us really diving into the heart of Christ here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, like if we just read that, right, does that not come across almost cruel? Like, here's what I'm saying. Okay, if, if, if Randy called me and said, hey, Vince, I need the antidote that I conjured up in my house, because that's because we're getting there. And so, uh, and he says, hey, I need that uh, because uh, Kelly is sick, and, if, and you need to come right now. And I said, okay, hey, love you guys, but I'm not leaving for a couple days. So, so hear me, like that sounds somewhat suspect. And, and so I think when we begin to dive in further, you begin to well, ask your questions of like, well, what's going on here? And we're going to find some more answers to that question. But here, I want to come back to, okay, five and six, ready? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus is ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Here's what I want to highlight. This is not a, hey, if you're having a tough time, don't worry, God's got a different timing type of application, don't be sad type of deal, okay? This is is let's look at the life of Jesus, the heart of Christ, and say that even in this moment, his thoughts were upon those who were grieving, even though it doesn't seem that way. Now, I want you to think about this. This is Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, who is the most empathetic, compassionate, and amazing man in the history of the world. And so he was hurting knowing that Lazarus, his friend, was ill. He was grieved knowing his friends were hurting. He didn't want his friend to die, and he knew he was the answer, so it's not like he was like, I'm just gonna stay away. No, no, he had a purpose, and that purpose was a love for these three people. I think one of the things that has to begin, when we start saying, how do we pray, it has to come back to our hearts and say, do we love people? Like, like what flows out of us like, is there this, this insane, like, love and compassion for the other that would be willing to sacrifice what is rational even at times to say, no, but I'm going to go this direction because this is how I best love you. Like, it, this is how, like, I best pour out the love of God into your life and let that then, let that fill up so what spills from your mouth in prayer is loving words and loving supplication for all the saints, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And we'll put some more feet to the specific prayers in just a moment. But that's, again, wrapping our minds around the heart of Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. Um, we're going to skip to verse 32. In between uh, verse uh, 6 and 32, he arrives. Okay, he makes his journey. He finally gets there. And so let's pick it up in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was in Psalm, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Which the simple answer is to that question is, yeah. Like, of course, he, if he had shown up on time, that, that probably would have been the way the story carries out. But again, let us zoom in on Christ. In the midst of all of the sadness, in the midst of the confusion and the chaos and the hurt and the where are you's, what is Jesus doing? He's weeping. Like, his, his heart goes out. He experiences 
empathy and sadness and grief and hurt and brokenness. When it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit, this, this is not, this, the, the, okay, the Greek language denotes like a boulder on top of you, a weight, a crushing reality of struggle and emotional response to something that is difficult. And again, I, 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 listen, and he knows what he's about to do. You think he didn't, you, you think like in that moment he still thought Lazarus wasn't going to raise from the dead? That he wasn't in about five minutes going to walk in there and say, Lazarus, come out? No, he knew. He knew what was going on, but he still what? Chose to seek and to be present with people first. To show love and compassion and empathy for the other. Again, defining his life by humility. And a hope, because at the same time, right, he knows what God's doing. We already saw it in the previous text. This thing isn't going to end up in death. This is so that people would see the glory of God, that they would experience the love of God in greater measure. Jesus, humble hope. Okay. Humility allows us to be ever-present with people, to sit in the brokenness and the pain, and then that then spills over in the prayer again. We're getting there. I promise this is a prayer text Oftentimes when we start talking humility, um, there's this, this guy, Tim Keller, we quote him from time to time here. Um, there's a book, though, and we don't recommend a ton of books from the pulpit, um, mostly because there's something you'll find you don't like in it, and then we'll hear emails about it. But um, this one, I think, is pretty good from start to finish, and I think it's because it's only like 55 pages. Um, so all of you who don't like reading, this is the book for you. Um, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Okay, and I would encourage you to check it out. It's like three bucks on Amazon. Okay, if you, if you want one, we'll buy it for you. Freedom of self-forgetfulness. And in it, he starts talking about humility. And he starts saying, humility is not thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less. Okay, so it, it's not tearing yourself down. It's not saying, I'm not that great. In fact, you know one of my biggest pet peeves in the entire world is, is when someone, if I come up to you and say, Man, you did a great job. And you go, hey, 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 man, not me, not me. Hey, hey, all him. Hey, not me, all him. Like, just say thank you, right? Like, just say thanks. I know it was him. I'm a Christian too. I get it. Just say thanks. Like, I'm trying to compliment you. We get it. The Lord's amazing. But thank you, right? And so that just, that's, okay, never mind. Um, it's not thinking less of yourself. You don't need to tear yourself down. You don't need to think that God didn't gift you in certain areas. You don't need to think that God, etc., etc. You need to think of yourself less often. You need to not be the center of your world every step of the way. You need to not always think that everything around me works for me because it doesn't. Everything works for him. And in, in that reality... Keller, and I think the Bible, as we study the scriptures, would say is true freedom. You can begin to let go, okay, and, and, and make yourself low, okay, where Christ was from down here. I think the prayers that fall from our mouth have the right context for the Lord to answer. Okay, let's keep going. John 11, 32 through 37. <clears throat> oh, sorry, 38. Excuse me. <clears throat> Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Hear me. He died four days prior to this. Okay? 
He died four days prior. And so we knew that when he was first sent, when people first sent to come to Jesus, he was still alive, right? And so we're talking maybe five days Jesus took, because he probably waited two days. It took a few days of travel to get to Bethany. So almost five days since Jesus first heard about this, uh, he finally gets to the tomb. He says, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, and here's his prayer. Okay, and this is is where it's all moving. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Now again, we, we often, and we talk, try to talk about this in, in the first couple weeks of this series, like prayer, like it often becomes this, well, it's the last 10 minutes before I go to bed. Okay, which that is prayer, certainly. Um, it becomes, uh, maybe when you wake up in the morning, if you, if you have a prayer closet, right? so you use some of this language, uh, it's just set apart time. Man, like God, we said in week one, right, is present 24-7, 365. He is with you at all times. If you are in him, the Holy Spirit, present in your life, just talk. Like, like just, just talk. He's here. Like right now, he's here. Like you, you hear me. You can talk to God right now. Like, like you, can, you, can you wrap your mind? It's crazy. Right now, God is here. His spirit is here and present. And he hears the words coming from my mouth. He hears the whispers that go around the room. When he hears the giggles from Nell. Like he knows it all. He's here. So talk to him. So what we see with Jesus is in the posture of life. Okay? just begins to talk to his father. And, and he, says, he says, Father, I, I know that you've heard me. Now, here's, here's like when I love when there's some mystery to the scripture because we don't, it, it seems to be, and, and most commentaries, theologians that have studied this passage would say there was probably some prayer that happened before he says these words, but this is just what we get recorded. Because he says, I, I know that you hear me. Well, it's like, well, what did you say? Like, I, I wanted, what did you say? It's, it's a question I want to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. It's like, hey, when you rose Lazarus from the dead, what did you talk to the Father about? What did he know that you said? But he probably just said, I, I'm not even going to speculate. But we know that he spoke to his Father. We know that his Father heard him. And we know in his humility that he gave his Father credit. In his humility, he says, Father, I thank you that you heard these prayers. And then he began to then think, but I want these to also bless those around me. Do you, do you see how all of a sudden his, this, this prayer life, this communion with God, it, this communication with God is not centrally focused just on you as an individual, but rather you, the others around you, and our Heavenly Father who lives from above. In this beautiful family where we, we just dialogue, we communicate, and God does work. Father, I thank you that you hear me, and I want people to hear this because I want them to be blessed. It is a heart posture that informs and shapes how we are to pray. You can't just listen. It's, it's not about copying his words. It, it, it's, it's not about you guys leaving here and say, well, I'm just going to be more humble. It's not about you leaving and saying, I'm just going to be more expectant and hopeful. Hear me, friends, like, and we talk about this a lot, that will last you 
probably through the week. And then life will hit you, and then the hope goes, okay? The humility goes when different things begin to come into life. The thing that transforms is the Spirit himself. To conform us and make us like Jesus, that we would be humble, not act humble, right? That we would be hopeful and expectant, not just like act like we are, but that would just be our posture. And because that's our posture, what overflows is prayer upon prayer upon prayer that we know falls in expectant hope to the God whom we serve, that he will answer, act, and do it perfectly. How do we pray? I think we pray with humble hope. And we land with our final application point. And here's the deal. Um, I... You know, like we start talking about application, like, hey, I want us, like even a couple weeks ago when we started this series, like, I want our church to, to be a church of prayer, a house of prayer, of people who petition the Lord frequently on behalf of ourselves and each other in the city. Like, I long for that. Like, we cannot continue to just go without nonstop depending upon him and his work. And so I want that for us. And so a lot of this has been, well, how do we, what's, what's the golden key? Like, how, how do I give you some application point that's going to crack open the lock and we're just going to do it? And it doesn't work that way. And so I began to think through what the application point or points for this sermon, and I kept coming back to this text. And it's, it's a very different type of application. And so um, let's, let's go to John 17, 20 through 26. John 17, just turn to the right handful of pages. And um, I want to highlight as we go through this the relationship between Jesus and his Father, okay? Uh, and so that he's going to pray for us, which is beautiful. Like, just to think that, like, hear me, if, if you, what he's praying for in this text is the future church, right? It's future believers, those who would come to know him. He's, he's praying for some of you, right? I don't know everyone's story in here. If I, it, like, if you're here and you're not a Christian, thanks for being here. Like, it's awesome that you'd come and visit us. Um, whatever reason, if you have questions, thoughts, concerns, you're welcome here, you're loved here, we'd love to meet you and get to know you. Um, but what he's praying for is the church. But in the midst of that, okay, what he's, what he's praying for is this beautiful representation of him and his father. So let's read. John 17, 20 through 26 says this. I didn't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, ready, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be on us, that, we, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them." That at the heart, hear me, at the heart of Jesus' prayer for the future coming church that would be a representation of the gospel to the world was him and his relationship to his Father. Him and his love and received love from his Father. The application point for this sermon is not, hey, practice the words you say when you pray. It's not, hey, be more humble 
humble yourself. All these things are good things, not saying they're bad things. But hear me, if we keep trying to toil away on what's coming out without actually spending time on what's within, it won't even matter. What we need to return to, I think, and this text shows us, is that our prayer life must be centered around you and Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? What is Jesus? What is the Father? What is the Spirit? What have they spoken to you and about you? Hear me, in spite of you, not because of you. What has the Father communicated? What does he lavish? What has he lavished? We just went through 42 weeks in the book of Ephesians talking about the lavishness and the riches that he pours out, which is and are his grace and mercy and love and presence and salvation. Like he has done it all and made himself low where we cannot get as low as him that he might raise us up in the resurrection. We are new creations. You are a new person with a new heart that Jesus loves, that the Father loves, that when the Father sees you, Christian, he sees his son. He he, he sees someone that he nonstop wants to commune, communicate, and counsel with. And hear me, the more more we we, fall in love with Jesus, the more we can reflect on the gospel the more this gets filled up and what spills out is prayers upon prayers that give glory to God, that give love and the gospel to the other and joy to self. How do we pray like Christ? We have the heart of Christ and it has to be pursued. It has to be taken seriously. When you start talking about the posture of prayer, when we start studying through how people pray just even physically throughout the Bible, you begin to notice two major trends in how people pray. The first one was intentionally. There was a lot of intention to it, and it wasn't just, ah, you know, I guess I'll throw this up there right now. It was like, no, I'm going to talk to Jesus. I'm going to well, talk to the Lord right now. I'll talk to God, Yahweh, right now. Okay? And, okay, not, not, just, not just intentionally, but with reverence. Like like true reverence. And hear me, here's what's amazing about how we revere Jesus is that he both says he is our Lord and he is our friend. And so, so we walk this line of saying, Jesus, like it even makes me revere you even more that you would call me friend when I've done nothing but prove myself an enemy. So the, so the gospel fills us, makes us like Jesus and moves our prayer life to be like Christ. Not you white-knuckling to be better at prayer. Not you just doing, it's, it starts internal. And man, I just, the vision of a church that prays like that, we already know the impact it would have on the world because it happened 2,000 years ago and the broken were repaired and the marginalized were brought in. The sojourner found a home. The blind could see. The lame could walk. The kingdom of God had come into the world. And it will continue to come into this world and people will be set free from pain, hurt, and brokenness as the church intercedes and impeaches and not impeaches, and, and desires and goes to the Father for him to do the work. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, I confess um, my own just like over belief and self and capability ends. Lord, pray that Holy Spirit, you would continue to convict and if others amongst our community, amongst our family, God, just and we we just struggle to pray, Lord. We know that it was not God. I know it was not our like our hard work that brought us into your family. It wasn't our our like our assembly line of good deeds, God. It was by your grace and your mercy that you saved us. And it is by your grace and your mercy that you transform us and renew us. And so right now, I, I, I implore you, Lord, Holy Spirit, to make us more like Christ, that you would refine our hearts, that you would renew our minds, that you would see uh, your glory be found amongst the hearts and the lives of this community of faith. God, would you bless us God, that in that blessing, God, that we would be a people that would turn that blessing to the world. God, draw us into deeper communion with you. You're our Savior, you're our Lord, and you're our friend. And we love you, Jesus. So speak to our hearts, and may we never forget it, that we'd be so filled up that from our mouths would pour out the prayers that will change the world. In Jesus' name, amen.